And uh, now the rest of you all know what that title on the sermon notes this morning is all about, right? Even Humpty Dumpty. Maybe you hadn't thought before that Humpty Dumpty could tell the gospel. And tell you what, if Humpty Dumpty can tell the gospel, what does that suggest about you? You probably can too, right? All right, well, I want you to open your Bibles this morning. Open your Bibles and turn to... Acts chapter 17. This is a story that some of you might be familiar with, but it's an interesting story about an unusual opportunity and an unusual way in that opportunity to tell the gospel. It's about using where we're at, using in the midst of where God has set us and what he's given us to work with, which isn't what we expected necessarily. And yet in the midst of this, I could tell the gospel. How? What does that look like? Well, I give you, I give you four outlines, and I want to move through those this morning as we go through this story that even Humpty Dumpty is an example of how Paul does this, how he takes people that he's set among where they are and goes from there to tell them what he desperately wants to tell them. You've got people that you're around. You've got family. You've got friends. You've got people that you work with. You've got neighbors. These are people that you care about. They've had a great fall. All of us are in that fall. All of us, that same brokenness. And our best efforts, the, the, the most helpful resources cannot put us back together again. Only the king, only the king of kings can. You desperately want them to know your savior, your king, your Jesus. And, and yet God sets us in the midst of these opportunities and relationships in ways that we don't see coming, in ways that we might not expect to do just that. Let me jump into the story, not, not, to, not to belabor that point anymore. We're going to jump right in in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. The first thing I want to start with is the good news. Expect opposition. Okay? If you want to tell somebody about Jesus, if you want to tell somebody about your faith in Christ, guess what? Expect opposition. Isn't that good news? Great, okay. Expect opposition and go with it. We withdraw, right? Or, or we, 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 we try to run the other direction. Or we try to do an end run. Expect opposition and go with it. Acts chapter 16. 17, rather. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Well, hold on. What's that about? Paul is waiting for somebody at Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas because they're still at the last town that Paul's been run out of. Paul had been to Thessalonica, and after several weeks, he got run out of Thessalonica. Then they went to Bree and had a wonderful ministry there, and people were listening, and people were intrigued by what he was telling them. And they went back and they searched the Old Testament scriptures to see if those things were so, and they saw that they were. But then some people from Thessalonica came down there too and, and, and stirred up trouble against them, and, he, and, and, and they had to get them out of that town as well. And so Paul goes on down the road. They send him off to Athens, and, and, he, and he gives instructions, have, have Timothy and Silas come to me as soon as they can. He's on his own. In really, you know, forced out, pushed out, exiled, no visible means of support in this huge urban metropolis called Athens. 
in the midst of that environment, it'd be easy for Paul to withdraw. It'd be easy for Paul to keep his head down. It'd be easy for, be easy for Paul to say, well, that hasn't worked so well. I guess I'm going to give that up. People around here, I thought God was sending me here. I thought the Spirit was directing this way and that way in the, the Macedonian call that brought us across to Europe in the first place, but it hasn't gone so well since then. So, here's Paul. What does he do? In the midst of this city, without his friends, without his traveling companions, without any visible means of support, his spirit, it says, is provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and the marketplace, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we, may we know what this new teaching is you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We want to know more. Therefore, what these things mean now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A lot of conversations, a lot of babbling going on, if I may. They were used to that. And so Paul comes along, and he's, he's first of all, he's, he, he doesn't keep quiet. Where he has some connection... Uh, for him, as a, as a Jewish person, one of the places to go would be to the synagogue. And there he not only finds Jewish people with the same Old Testament background, they know the prophets, they know the promise, they know the hope of Israel, and he can tell them he's come. Not only that, there are these other God-fearing Gentiles. There are other devout persons, other people who had learned of the God of Israel, who were not Israelites but also feared the God of Israel. They believed that Yahweh was the one true God, and so they would also go to the synagogue to hear of him and to learn about him. And so Paul goes there, and he has an, he, he has an automatic audience. It said that when Paul would go to a city, he would always check out two places. He'd, he'd, he'd find out, he'd check Google Maps, where are the synagogues and where are the jails? Because the synagogues would be where he'd start, the jails would be where he would end up. That's Paul's style, and he does it over and over again. So he starts at the synagogue, but not only. He's in the synagogue probably on the Sabbath, probably on Saturday, and he's in the marketplace every other day of the week. Who can he talk to in the midst of the workaday world? In the midst of the marketplace, that's where he's striking up conversations with those who happen to be there. He's reasoning. He's talking. He's conversing in the synagogue. We know what he's reasoning and talking and conversing about. It's about Jesus. And in the marketplace with those who just happened to be there. Lord, who will you bring across my path? God, here I am, and here these are. I guess this is a divine appointment. And away he goes. So he reasons with them there in the synagogue. And some of the Epicurean, the Stoic philosophers, well, who are these people? Two schools of thought uh, prominent in Athens at the time. The Epicureans were the hedonists of the day. They were the, you only go around once, you might as well get, grab all out of life that you can. This life is all we've got. There is nothing. When the physical body dies, they believe the soul died as well. So there's nothing else but this. We might as well, we might as well squeeze life like a lemon for everything we can get out of it. Pleasure first. 
my ambitions, my passions, my desires. That's where I will find fulfillment. Does that sound familiar? A lot of folks in our society, whether or not that's the, that's the worldview that they would espouse, that's, that's in practicality often how we're living. We're living that this is all we've got. I've got to squeeze this life and somehow try to find some fulfillment in it, whether it's in my possessions or whether it's in my experiences, the things that I get to do, the things that I've seen, the places I've been, all of that trying to find some kind of fulfillment. The Stoics, on the other hand, were resigned, in a sense, to fate, that the gods are in charge and we are not. So our, our, our fulfillment is found, our peace is found, our, our, some sense of stability and, and fulfillment in life is found, we just accept our place in it. Whatever comes, comes, and I'm just going to roll with the punches, and it's better to, to expect less and to deny myself an aesthetic sort of a lifestyle, to get by with less and to serve others, not because of some difference it's going to make, not so that they will love me, no, they might not anyway, but just because I'm supposed to. And so it's the life of assigned drudgery in many ways. Just going through, trying to be, if I could compare these today, I'd compare them to hedonism on one side and a, a therapeutic moral deism on the other. That God kind of wants you to feel better about yourselves if you'll simply play by the rules and do what's right and there's a morality out there we're, we're supposed to follow and if we'll do that, if we'll do the right things, we'll follow that morality, then the, then the generic God who's out there somewhere but not personally involved with us at least will judge us rightly that we did what we were supposed to do. Either one of those falls far short of the relationship of the true and living God. And Paul doesn't answer them on their terms. Those are the two ideas that are floating out there. And Paul, Paul is going to suggest a third way, a higher way above either one of those. But first of all, take a look. He, in the midst of his conversations with them, they say, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, that doesn't sound very flattering. Does what does this esteemed teacher have to tell us? No, no, no. A babbler kind of catches it. Actually, the Greek word is seed picker. What does this seed picker have to say? And, and, and it initially, it, it referred to a bird that would come along and pick up the seeds that somebody else was trying to plant. It kind of reminds me when my wife, she plants these bulbs for beautiful flowers in the spring. She puts these bulbs in the ground, Right? And then apparently the moles come along underneath and they dig underneath where the bulbs were and the chomp, chomp, chomp. I guess moles not only like grubs and worms, but they like salad too. So there's these nice juicy bulbs that are planted there and they just come along and, and the bulbs disappear. They're gone. Nobody knows where they went. And a seed picker was like that. This bird that comes along and steals the seeds. It, it came to be used derogatorily regarding somebody not only, okay, babbling and talking, but also in the marketplace, a seed picker was somebody who would, who would scavenge around, who would pick up things that were left and would gather those together and make something out of them, make a living. A seed picker in the Athenian marketplace was kind of like the guy with a shopping cart full of bottles and cans, okay? This is not a flattering term. What does this seed picker have to say. Others misunderstood him. They mocked him or they misunderstood him. Sound familiar with our experiences in trying to share something about our faith in the midst of the marketplace, in the midst of the workaday world? We might be mocked. 
we might be misunderstood. Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher, a proclaimer of foreign divinities. Not merely a different God, but different gods. He's talking about Jesus and a resurrection. The word for resurrection was, uh, sounded a lot like a, a deity named Anastasis. Okay, a, a, a god of life after death. And so he th- they think he's talking about a couple of different, different divinities, some kind of spirit beings that we haven't heard of before. And so they took him and they brought him to the Arapagus. You see, a misunderstanding becomes a new opportunity. So Paul's going to get to, to explain himself. He's going to get to present in a new way rather than pulling back, rather, rather than withdrawing. Expect opposition and go with it. Where might somebody's misunderstanding actually lead into a new opportunity? He does that, interestingly enough, like it or not, by starting where they are. People around you are involved in stuff that you don't like, that you don't support, and yet, this is where they are. For instance, Paul is in a city full of idols. His spirit is provoked within him by these idols. So you would expect, when he gets a chance to talk to the philosophy, the religious or spiritual leaders of the city, that he would, he would call them into account. What are you doing? Why do you have all these idols? Don't you know that this is evil? Don't you know that these are false? Don't, they know that, don't you know that these things are leading you away from the true God? Paul actually uses their idol to point them toward the true God whom they don't know. Like it or not, start where they are. Look at verse 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Or you could actually read that. You are very spiritual. You're spiritually minded. You obviously have an interest in spiritual things. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, some Bible versions will read what you worship in ignorance, which actually sounds a little antagonistic. It sounds oppositional. And, and, and so unknown is actually better. Ignorance is simply not knowing about something. Nobody ever told me. That's the kind of unknowing. What you don't know. You've yourselves identified that there is an unknown God out there. Or maybe there is. People around us aren't so far from that. Well, maybe there is God. Well, if there is God, well, what might that mean? There's actually the beginning of a philosophical discussion there. A discussion of life being bigger and the meaning of life being bigger than just the stuff that immediately surrounds us. What if there is a God? Maybe for some of the Athenians, it's like, well, you know, we got all these idols, but what if we missed one? What if there's a God out there that actually we could be in trouble because we didn't honor. So we're going to build an idol and we're going to honor the God that we don't even know. Maybe it's a city insurance policy. He says, that God that you don't know but you want to honor, I'm here to tell you about the God who is so far, up till now, unknown to you. I see you are very spiritual. Have you ever thought about that in terms of a person who's, who's, who's very religious and yet does not follow the Bible, or somebody who's very spiritual-minded, new-agey even, spirits all over the place, and yet does not follow the Bible. Okay, we'll start there. Understand, you're very spiritual. Actually, the Bible is a very spiritual book. It is. 
there is the spirit of the living God indwelling his believers. That, 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 that's pretty spiritual. You can, you, can, you can get some traction with that. There are other spirits. There are other, there's, there's, there's spiritual warfare going on here. So certainly the Bible's a spiritual book. There's traction began there just out of spiritual interest. Well, if you're interested in spiritual things, have you ever, what do you think about the Bible? It's a place to start. But the key is he's starting where they are. Election. I keep talking about the election, having a little fun here and there. I'll just poke a little bit today, okay? I was getting my haircut. You can all see that I did get my haircut, a lot of it, in fact. I was getting my haircut, and I listen to the radio, and this Billy Joel song comes on. You may be right. I may be crazy. But I just may be the lunatic you're looking for. And I joked. That sounds like that could be the Trump campaign song. To just begin a conversation that led into what is it that's wrong and so, so, so um, absurdly wrong with both of these candidates. Somebody well expressed it to me. One of the candidates epitomizes what, is, what has gone wrong and gone to seed and gone so corrupt about our government. The other candidate shows what has gone so wrong and so gone to seed about our society at large. You see, the candidates that we've ended up with are not going to be the turning point to our society. These candidates do not show us where our society is going. These candidates are lag indicators. They show us where our society has already gone. They tell us something about the corruption and the immorality and the vulgarity of American culture of humanity, of you and I. Yeah, we may be, we may be right. We, we may be crazy. We may be the messed up ones. And we need help that's obviously bigger than these two. What is it that we really need? You see, the conversation is now going in a different direction. In the midst of trouble or tragedy, in the midst of a broken heart, agreeing with that and saying, yeah, you know, you're agreeing with God. This is the kind of thing that breaks God's heart too. And you brought it into a conversation without even trying to provide an answer. We don't know. This might have happened because of this. You and I don't know those whys. But we do know that this kind of human tragedy and brokenness also breaks our God's heart. Start there. What about in the midst of a question when something like that happens? If God is good and if God is powerful then why would God allow this to happen? You say, I don't know. Because you don't know. I don't know. In most situations, I don't know why God has allowed something to happen. But I do know this. An even bigger question is, if, if God is good and God is powerful and, and human, humanity is this messed up and these kind of things happen, why in the world would he send his own son, God in humanity, right into the middle of it? Why would he do that? Why would he himself take on and live in and live out and die in the very worst of humanity if he didn't have to? We're stuck in it. But God was not. God willingly joined into our misery. Wow, that turns the direction in a different direction. That's an, even, that's an even bigger question. Sometimes it's okay to answer a question with a question. Like it or not, start where they are and move toward the gospel from there. That's what God says. This, this God that you don't know, I'm here to tell you about. And then he does it. 
He makes God big, and he makes God close. Don't be, don't be bashful about God. God is big. Our God is big, and our God is close. So he brings him in. Look what Paul says about God. Look at the things that he mentioned. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, not just one of the gods, not just somebody like Zeus. This is the God who made the world and everything in it. All of the world, all of the worlds, all of the planets, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. Where does he start? He starts in creation, interestingly enough. You say, well, I don't believe in creation. People don't believe that anymore. That's okay. Start there. The God who made everything. He doesn't live in these little temples. He doesn't, he's not defined by our religions, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Make God big. God doesn't need anything from me. But everything I have, I have from him. God gives us the very breath that we breathe. God gives us the moments of our day. The, the, the beauty of a sunrise in the midst of a rainy week. There was a parting of the clouds the other evening. I think it was Thursday evening when I was coming home. And there was this glimpse of a beautiful sunrise in the midst of that. And there's beauty in the midst of the mess. And point it out and say, Look what God gave us there. Something wonderful, something good that happens. You can say, God has, God has been good to you. Seeing a talent that somebody expresses, God has given you a real gift. And see, because all these things are from God. That's God's providence. Paul speaks about the, greatness, about the creation of God. He speaks of God's providence. And he speaks about God's sovereignty. He made from one man every nation of mankind, there's Adam, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. These are guys that are, that, that are, that are among the leaders of Athens. These are the educated elite. They knew their history. They knew where the great days of Greek came from, of Philip the Macedonian and Alexander the Great after him that established a, a, a fantastic Greek empire later swallowed up by the Romans. But they know their history. And they probably know as well that toward the end of the conquering, as, as Alexander made his way east, and he comes to Jerusalem. And outside Jerusalem, it's told that the high priest meets with Alexander. And that the high priest tells Alexander, and he greets him and honors him as, as God's conqueror, because God had predicted that he would conquer. And he, and he tells to Alexander the prophecies of Daniel, of which Greece is included. Oh, that the God that Paul is talking about is a God that, that has had Greece and all of their national pride. God has had that as part of his plan. The allotted periods are epochs and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yes, he's actually not far from each one of us. Make God big. Make God in charge because he is. And bring him close. This is the God that I know. Tell your story. How the Son of Man came to seek and to save you. The Son of Man, Jesus himself says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. That if you seek me, 
then you will find me if you seek for me with all your heart. God is not pushing humanity away. God is not standing up there waiting to judge us. God is urging us to come, urging us to come out of the storm into the ark while there's still time. Make God big and bring God close. Finally, tell them what they need to do and then trust God to do it. Tell them what they need to do, what they need to do. How, how, how does Paul continue? How does, he, how, does, how does he wrap this up? Well, it's interesting. It's something I wanted to point out here. In, t- in terms of, of making God close, he again uses their own poetry. Paul doesn't quote the prophets in Athens. He quotes their own poets. In fact, he, he, he quotes this line, in, in him we live and move and have our being. He said, your own prophets, your, your, your own poets rather know this, that God is not far from him. Well, that poem that he's quoting is a poem written concerning Zeus. Now, it's, in, it's, it's, it's error concerning Zeus, but there's something about the resurrection. There is, a, there is a little light in the midst of this dark culture. There is something there that would point them toward the truth of Jesus and his resurrection. Because concerning Zeus, the big man, so-called God, in, in Greek mythology, it is written, Thou art not dead forever, because Zeus was killed, you see. Thou art not dead forever. Thou art alive and risen. For in thee we live and move and have our being. What is true about Jesus, echoes of it can be found ahead of time in Greek poetry. And that's what Paul draws on to tell the truth about Jesus. For we indeed are his offspring. Again, that was was about Zeus, but Paul uses it to point towards Jesus. Paul uses it to point towards God. Then if we are his offspring, if God made us, then we don't think about the divine being being like gold and silver. The divine being is not an idol like these. If he's the one who made us, if we're his offspring, what? Paul's saying we're made in the image of God. God is not made in our image. We are made in his image. God is bigger than us. So he tells them then, the times of ignorance, the times of not knowing. See how he goes back to that key theme again? Where did he start? The altar to the unknown God. The times of not knowing are past. Gentlemen, he says, God has shown himself to you. Men and women of Athens, God has shown himself to you. And now he commands all of you to repent, to turn from your your dark and silly and little notions of God. Where you you have come up with these ideas of God as as a great humanity, as an exalted human which makes for a very small God and a very petty one at that. But to turn from that and recognize the true and living God for who he really is, because he's fixed the day on which he will judge all the world is accountable to God. He doesn't shy away from that accountability. And that God is going to judge in righteousness through a man that he has appointed. There's the incarnation again. That God became a man and dwelt among us. The God had translated into humanity, became a man and dwelt among us, that God, that he had, the man that he has appointed, and of this he gave assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. He speaks the resurrection, that which is unique and singular about Christianity. You see, Paul preaches the gospel and he starts from an idol to tell them what they need to do and then to trust God to do it. 
You say, yeah, but if I did that, if, when, I, when I bring up Jesus, when I get to the resurrection, when I said that you know, all of us are lost and you, you can be saved, you can be born again, you can have new life in Christ, if you'll believe in him, they laugh at me. They mock at me. I'm the religious nut at work. They laughed at Paul, too. You're in good company. It's okay. Tell them what they need to do and trust God to do it. This is the part that we can't do. I can't, not, I can't bring eternal life to pass. I can't do it. You can't do it. Takes the pressure off, doesn't it? You, you and I can't save anybody. But God will use us. And look what happens here. In Athens, a city filled with idols. There they are in the, in the, in the central, in, in the, whether, whether it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the main city hall area in the marketplace or whether it's actually out up on that Mars Hill. It could be either, but wherever they are, meeting with the highest, the elite of society, this is what happens in verse, look at verse 32. When they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some immediately mocked. They completely dismissed that because that is completely contrary to their worldview. Stoics, Epicureans alike. They could easily completely dismiss that. But others said, we will hear you again about this. I'm not sure, but I'd like to hear more. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some believed. Among those who believed, one of the ones was one of the leaders of the city, one of the, one of the members of this council, the least likely to buy into some new foreign god who's, who basically trashes all of what they've ever known and valued before. And yet he does. He believes. That's not just about the elite. It's not just about this, this high and well-known person who believes. We have no idea who Damaris is. Now Dionysius, he's, he's recognized in church history. Apparently he was the first pastor of the church that was begun in Athens. He later on became, became a bishop overseeing several churches in greater Athens. He continued in his faith. And there were others with him. We haven't got a clue who they are. But trust God to do it. I said before that Paul didn't quote the prophets. Is it possible to share the gospel without actually quoting scripture? You know the gospel. You know the truth that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. Sometimes we're really worried. We don't know enough Bible. We don't know enough to answer all the hard questions that are going to come. But this you do know. Jesus died for you. God loved you and your neighbor. And, and so he sent Jesus, and Jesus came into the world, took on himself humanity, that he, as the infinite God, could die an infinite death in our place. I don't know exactly how that ends up working for me in my place, but it does, and God says that it does. And if I will simply believe him for it, I'll be saved on that basis, just because I take God at his word. That much I know. I don't have to quote scripture to explain that to somebody. It could be that in our day and age, and when some people the year around, the Bible is going to be an obstacle for them. You believe it. To you, it's authoritative. To them, it is not. That's okay. Start where they are. Paul quoted poets instead of prophets. I thought about the song, Imagine. John Lennon, right? I've referred to it before. Imagine there's no heaven. 
says it's easy if you try. No hell belief, no hell below us. That's a relief. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Only today. Oh. That sounded good when he first sang it, but as, you, as it sinks in, as you think about it, only today. That's the Epicureans. There's nothing else. Really? Nothing else? Well, when you're young and strong and in the midst of all that you consider fun, that might be okay. But as you go through life and see how life plays out, ah, oh, your soul hungers because there is supposed to be something more than this. The U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, imagine there is heaven. God is really there. Jesus really came then. He died our sins to bear. And imagine all the people in eternity. Imagine that God could really use you. We talked earlier about the Fountain Village Apartments, that ministry opportunity. Imagine somebody there that you might meet. Somebody there that you just might talk to in the midst. Something that connects about their kids and yours or, or, or their kids and your grandchildren. Or some way the conversation goes just a little farther. You get to be the one to invite them to something here. Maybe it's Christmas jazz. Imagine one day in the future, in eternity, you share all of that with them there because you took an opportunity to share it with them here. Imagine what God... See, we can trust him to do it. Imagine what God would do if we simply would present ourselves to him. Imagine, what is eternity going to be? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know enough about it to know that I want to share it with people around me. Amen? Father, would you use us? Lord, the, the world is fallen. Lord, we look at the situation today and there's so much consternation about uh, politics, about corruption, about violence, about the lawlessness, killings, police. Lord, it's as if we've run out of answers, and yet the frustration and the hurts continue to build. Humanity has had a great fall, and desperately we need our King Jesus. Father, would you use us? Lord, we would dare to imagine you would use us toward your eternity with people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.